Brethren, I'm going to ask that you uh, keep the insert in your bulletin. This has a hymn in it called Amidst Us Our Beloved Stands. This is going to be our concluding hymn. We're not ready to sing it yet, but I want to make sure that everyone has a copy of that in preparation for our concluding time together. Well, brethren, I'm going to say something that I always feel funny saying, um, or as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking this is just an odd statement. This morning, I'm going to conclude our discussion of the sovereignty of God. See, that just doesn't even sound right. You know, any preacher who's preaching through the Bible will be preaching on the sovereignty of God in perpetuity because it's everywhere. But what I mean is, is that as we have been talking about Sovereign Grace Bible Church, and we began with the subject of sovereignty, we have focused on the subject of sovereignty and have endeavored to highlight this very word to think about what it means and to understand, better understand, even the significance of the very meaning, meaning of this title of our church, Sovereign Grace Bible Church. But to begin our, our time this morning, I would like to tell you a little bit of a, a story about an individual by the name of Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley was kidnapped, literally taken from her homeland of West Africa in 1761, was sold into slavery when she was only eight years old. In time, she became a remarkably gifted poet, and Wheatley's poems made her uniquely popular around the globe, even capturing the attention of individuals like Thomas Paine, John Newton, George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson. In one of her poems, she recounts the torturous experience of her capture and separation from her parents. She says this in one of her poems, I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Africa's fancied happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. Sealed was that soul, and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved." Such, such my case, and can I then but pray others may never feel tyrannic sway. Despite the incomprehensible pain that she endured in her youth, and by the way, imagine parents having one of your children kidnapped from you when they're just eight years old and sold into slavery. Despite this, she was able to see the hand of divine providence, the sovereign grace of God in it all. And so she says this as well in her poem, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew." Wheatley, though deprived of earthly freedom, understood that she had been released from the slavery of sin and that her emancipation in Christ 
was, in fact, true and eternal freedom. Rather than being overcome by a root of bitterness, she warned those who enjoyed the privileges of freedom not to live for this world, but to look with the eye of faith upon the crucified and risen Savior. In one particular poem, she wrote to the students at the University of Cambridge with this gospel appeal and warning, where she says this, While an intrinsic ardor prompts to write, the muses promises to assist my pen. T'was not long since I left my native shore, the land of airs and Egyptian gloom. Father of mercy, t'was thy gracious hand brought me in safety from those dark abodes. Students, to you tis given to scan the heights above, to traverse the ethereal space and mark the systems of revolving worlds. Still more, ye sons of science, ye receive the blissful news by messengers from heaven, how Jesus' blood for your redemption flows. See him with hands outstretched upon the cross. Immense compassion in his bosom glows. He hears revilers, nor resents their scorn. What matchless mercy in the Son of God. When the whole human race by sin had fallen, he deigned to die that they might rise again and share with him in the sublimest skies life without death and glory without end. Improve your privileges while they stay, ye pupils, and each hour redeem that bears or good or bad report of you to heaven. Let sin, that baneful vile to the soul, that baneful evil to the soul, by you be shunned, nor once remit your guard. Suppress the deadly serpent in its egg, ye blooming plants of human race divine. An Ethiop tells you tis your greatest foe. Its transient sweetness turns to endless pain, and an immense perdition sinks the soul. This is just a small sample of Wheatley's poems. But when you read her poetry, you see that they're saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're saturated with the message of the grace of God and salvation. Beloved brethren, only sovereign grace could accomplish this. That in the life of an individual who was kidnapped while a child was sold as mere property as a chattel slave, could speak to a privileged group of young college students and enjoin them to receive true riches, the riches of Christ. I begin with the story of Phyllis Wheatley. I don't often begin with poetry, by the way. But I begin with the story of Phyllis Wheatley in order to underscore the importance of our examination of the subject of the sovereignty of God. I've had people say, and I think I've already said this before, I've had people say that, you know, theology 
is really an impractical study. I beg to differ. The theology of God is actually very practical because it informs the manner in which we live. The very God whom we serve will determine how it is that we live and walk each and every day. And I believe that the truth of God's sovereignty is one that does in fact inform how we live. If we don't believe that God is sovereign, trust me, that will change the way in which you conduct your lives from day to day. But knowing that he is sovereign and knowing that he has a good and sovereign providence over all things enables us to trust him for the affairs of our daily life. Now, up to this point, as we've been addressing the subject of God's sovereignty, we began with the text of Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. In our first part of the three sermons that I preached so far on the subject of God's sovereignty, we started with Revelation 19.6, where we saw the great multitude singing the praises of God and declaring, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, and here's the key word, reigns. Reigns. The word basiluo is a term that speaks of monarchy. God reigns, which means that he exercises his monarchical rule over everything. This is the language that speaks again of his sovereignty as the king. So we took the time to talk about the terms that are typically translated in the English Bible as sovereign. English translations will vary, but the terms that we began with, and there are many other terms that we could have examined and looked at. But one of the words that we looked at was the word despota. Simon, uh, Simeon, rather, in Luke 2, uses the word to speak of his Lord, despota. The disciples use this term in Acts chapter 4, speaking again of the Lord and his sovereignty. Even in Revelation 6, where we see the fifth seal judgment when it is opened, John said, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O despota? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will that refrain from judging and avenging our blood on, who, on those who dwell on the earth? Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. We talked about the importance of that term. A despot is one who owns things. And since God owns everything, he bears all license, title, and authority to judge the living and the dead. And this is why they cry out to the despot, the despota, when will you avenge? When will you judge the wicked? That's one of the terms we looked at. The other term that we looked at is the word dunamis. This is a word that speaks of power, God's power. A monarch, in order to exercise rule and authority, has to have power. If you have a king that doesn't have power, he's not going to be able to exercise his dominion. And so the word dunamis is used in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15, where Paul, writing to Timothy, refers to the Lord as the only sovereign the monos despotes. As to the reality of God's absolute authority and power, the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 115 and verse 3 
that our God is in the heavens, remember? And what does he do? He does what he pleases. Why? Because he has all power and authority to do so. You want to talk about freedom? Many times people talk about mankind's freedom. Well, really what we need to talk about is God's freedom. His freedom is absolute, and nothing restrains him whatsoever. That's monarchical authority. That's sovereignty. We then, in the second sermon, examine how it is that men respond to this doctrine. We talked about how it is that for, for the children of God, this is a sweet and wonderful and comforting doctrine. For us, who are called the nethevote, the willingnesses, those who have been redeemed and whose hearts and minds have been transformed by grace, we serve our king and we do so with joy. But to the lost of this world, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is provocative. It provokes human flesh. Men do not want to hear that they're not autonomous. They don't want to hear that they're not absolutely free. They don't want to hear about the fact that they're slaves of sin and that they're under the judgment of God. This is why J.C. Ryle rightly says, of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And why is this? It's so because the clay likes to talk back to the potter, imagining that he has the power and authority to do so. This is why the nations rage against the sovereign king and his Mashiach, as we read in Psalm 2. And this is why the wicked vainly claim our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? By the way, that rhetorical question will be answered someday in the day of final judgment. And someday they will know, even as they mock God, they will know who really is Lord over them. And thirdly, in our third sermon on the subject of the sovereignty of God, we spoke of the particular idea of Christ's sovereignty over his church. Yes, Christ is sovereign over all things, but Scripture speaks of the particular nature of Christ's sovereignty over his church such that there's this unique and special relationship that we have to Christ in view of our redemption. And so we began with a verse that I think is somewhat hidden in the Bible. It's not really adequately exegeted and emphasized. But Paul, using five different participles to describe what spirit-filled living looks like, ends with this fifth participle where he says that we are to be or being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so we talked a little bit about the idea of filial fear, the fact that we are to reverence our Lord in view of his majesty, his authority. As Spurgeon says, if we fear God, we have nothing else to fear. Fear is a very important thing. It's, it rescues us from ungodly fear, and it rescues us from the fear of man, which is so prominently found within the human heart. But we're called to reverence Christ, to reverence the Messiah. In Psalm 2 and, le- 2 and verse 11, we are called to pay homage to the Son of God, where it says, worship the Lord with reverence. And there is the word yare, which in the Hebrew means reverence or fear. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Why? 
Because he's king. Because he's the Lord. Because he's worthy of all reverence, honor, and glory. And so we raise the question, if we're to be serving one another in the fear of Christ, and if we're to do so in view of the magisterial exaltation of Christ, where did Paul bring that up in Ephesians? Well, we looked at that last time. We looked at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, where he spoke to us about how it is that Christ, through his work on the cross and his resurrection, We see that the power of God was displayed through all of this, and it was displayed and was revealed to us who believe when, then he says this, which he brought about when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, referring, as we talked about before, to Psalm 110 and verse 1, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Yes, Jesus has authority and dominion over everything, But here Paul is helping us to understand the very particular reality of Christ's sovereignty over the church. Because the world is not called the church. The world is not called his body. The world is not called his bride. Those who believe, those who are his willing servants, are members of his kingdom. They're called his people. And they are his people by his sovereign grace. I was reminded recently how it is that 1 John (laughs) is a very binary epistle. You know, I'm really tired of the world using and maligning words. Um, Binary, just one or the other, on or off. Just have one of two options. 1 John's very clear, especially when you get to chapter 3. Just as there was Cain and Abel, you have the children of the devil and the children of God. If you take all of humanity and break it down, setting aside all the societal distinctions that we tend to emphasize in this world, it all boils down to there being only two classes of humanity, the children of God and the children of the devil. Those who believe in the Lord, those who submit to the authority of the king of the universe, and do so willingly, and those who remain at enmity with him. There is no third class of humanity. And brethren, for us to confess that we are Sovereign Grace Bible Church means that we serve the Sovereign King, and we do so because he has redeemed us to this end. Now, this morning in this fourth sermon and final sermon on the subject of sovereignty, again, that doesn't sound right. We'll be back in the subject again every time I open the Bible and preach. But but as we conclude this morning, I'd like for us to think about the subject of sovereignty and really 
direct our attention to the Lord's table in the process. All that I want to do here this morning is talk about the mystery, three things, the mystery, excuse me, the glory, the mystery, and the beauty of his sovereign love. The glory, the mystery, and the beauty of his sovereign love. Now, I got to tell you, and I keep saying this, I know, but even these three topics we could spend a lot of time on. But when we talk about God's sovereignty and the sovereignty of his love, we, we have to, first of all, understand that all of this is for his glory. God extends his sovereign love so that he would receive the glory, that he would be glorified. When we talk about his sovereign love, I think there's some measure in which we have to confess that this is a mysterious truth. Why would he save anybody? Why would he save me, this wretched sinner? All I know is that it is that which gives him glory. The rest I just have to leave to mystery, but we'll consider the fact that this is, has some measure of mystery to it. And then finally, I want us to conclude by talking about the beauty of this very subject. And again, the Lord's table is the beautiful display of our Lord's sovereign love to us. So let's first of all think about the glory of his sovereign love. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you've already turned to Ephesians, let me ask you to turn to your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 The Apostle Paul says this to the Ephesian believers. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to look at verse 7 and consider this word that he uses that's translated in my translation as show. Endeknumi. Endeknumi. This word speaks of the idea of God showing, revealing, displaying, even proving or demonstrating the beauty and the glory of his surpassing riches of his grace. 
That's why we're saved. Our salvation, mark this, our salvation is not principally about us. It's about him. I don't think that that's actually a... um, How do I say this? I don't know if I hear this enough. There used to be a song that... I can't remember the artist who sang it, but uh, we are the reason that he gave his life. Well, we are a reason. We're a part of that. But mark this, the ultimate reason that he gave his life is so that he would be glorified through our redemption. That is the ultimate purpose that God is serving in all of this. In other words, our salvation is theocentric. It is God-centered. God accomplishes this work so that he would showcase, display, and reveal his glory. His glory through the instruments of his grace and mercy. Now, chapter 2 and verse 7 is a reminder to us, it should be a reminder to us, of the fact that this is a continuation of an argument that's already been developed in the prior chapter. I say this because if you go back to chapter 1, this concept of our salvation being ultimately for God's glory has already been settled in chapter 1. So if you go back to chapter 1 in verses 4 through 6, we learned that, that that we were chosen before the foundation of the world by the Father... And the ultimate end to this is, according to verse 6, it is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Then you move on to verses 7 through 12, and we learn that the Son of God sacrificed himself, shedding his own blood so that we might have redemption. And then he says in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Then we get to the Spirit of God in verses 13 and 14 where Paul says that the Spirit of God was given as a pledge of our inheritance. And then he says in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Our salvation is a Trinitarian work. And it is all to the praise of his glory. That's Paul's point. And this is why, this is why Paul starts off with this remarkable description of our sin. It's remarkable. When you think about what you you have when you go from chapter 1 to chapter 2, you have this presentation of our salvation. And then he goes to our sin and does what is called, uh, produces what is called an anakaluthon, which is really kind of a fancy way of saying that Paul says a lot of things in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2, but never gives us a verb. Whenever you're trying to find the main idea of any sentence that is given to you, you you look for the verb. That's called looking for the heart of the sentence. That's how you get an idea of what the author is saying. Well, in chapter 2, there are no verbs until you get to verse 5. That's what's called an anakaluthon. In this particular anakaluthon, what you have is is a presentation of a lot of things, a lot of descriptions of things, and those descriptions are rather dark. Because he just talks about how it is that we were marching about lockstep with the forces of evil, evil, 
in our death march of rebellion, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so he goes on and on and on and talks about our sin and then says, but God, but God, this is where you were going, but God, but God being what? Rich in mercy. Because of his great love, it's, it's, there's nothing that was good in you or distinguishable about you such that God says, oh, look at that one. I'll pick that one. No, you were going that way, and God sent his love by means of his mercy to you rebels, he's saying. That's what he's saying to the church at Ephesus. You were, we were rebels in God's universe. The first verb that occurs in verse 5, and this is important that we just point this out here. Sunezao poiesin. That's a mouthful. Four words in the English represent that one verb. Made us alive together. That's the first verb. So think of the contrast. What was I doing before the Lord saved me? I was dead in my trespasses and sins. What is the work of God's mercy, grace, and love in my life? He made me alive together with Christ. And in all of this, it is for his glory. That was the point in chapter 1. The Father is glorified by his sovereign choice of you. The Son is glorified through his work of redemption, such that uh, his work on the cross, such that we now have, as Paul says, we have redemption through his blood. And the Spirit of God is glorified by virtue of the fact that we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And in all of this, God is showing displaying, revealing, demonstrating the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what he's doing. By the way, that word show, demonstrate, reveal, not only is it used with respect to our redemption here in Ephesians chapter 2, but it is also used with reference to God's display of his just wrath. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 17, it is used in this context where Paul says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate, reveal, or show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. What is God doing? He's demonstrating, showing, revealing his sovereignty, and he's doing it both by his vessels of mercy, and by means of those who are instruments of wrath. It's all about his glory. Well, God is showing, he's showing, first of all, that his love is an alien love. It is an alien love. Who dies for their enemies? 
By the way, when, when I even ask that question, we have to understand that we don't even comprehend, cannot comprehend, the vast expanse that exists between the Almighty and Holy God and the sinner. We can try. And by the way, the more we become sanctified, the better we understand it. But it is still a transcendent concept and thought and idea. God is infinitely holy. We're sinful. And the very thought of him extending mercy, grace, and love to us, redeeming us, and saving enemies of his so that he, we're now members of his family, that is a transcendent concept of love that we do not understand in the human realm. This is why I love hymns that speak of the wonder of God's love. There's one hymn that uh, at some point in time we'll get to it. It's a 17th century hymn by Samuel Crossman by the name of, it goes, this is the title, My Song is Love Unknown. The point is, is that among men, this is a love that we don't understand. It's not one that we know by nature. But it is a love that we have come to know. As John says in 1 John 4, 4 and verse 16, chapter 4 and verse 16, he says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Before that, we didn't know this love. We didn't believe this love. It is something that is, was completely off the charts in terms of our comprehension and understanding, and we're still learning about it. And what God is also displaying and revealing is this. He's demonstrating his sovereign power. Mark the language again of Ephesians chapter 2. You were, he says, dead. The participle you don't want to miss. We were being dead, or that was our state and condition. By the way, the particular word that he uses here for death, we need to think about that. The word is nekros. In the Greek language, you basically have two words that are used to speak of the idea of death, nekros and thanatos. Not to be morbid, but if you were to come upon an individual that you were speaking to and suddenly in the middle of the conversation they died, the event of death you would refer to as thanatos. That's the concept, that's more the concept of the word thanatos. Thanatos speaks of the event of death. And therefore, is really not talking any, any further about the condition of the individual. It's not really about anything more than the event of death, generally speaking. That's how the term is used. Necros speaks of the condition of death. And so now, if you were to use the word necros, you would come to the individual who died, and maybe a day later, you would then examine their condition, and you would notice that they're cold to the touch. Their condition is that they are dead. When we talk about necrotic tissue, we're talking about tissue that has already died and is decaying. Paul uses the word necros. He's not saying that we just recently died and we're, we may be able to be resuscitated. No, we're dead. We were being dead. We were in a necrotic condition marching about in this state of death, this state of spiritual death, and we were therefore a stench in the nostrils of God. I realize that Hollywood has popularized the idea of zombies. Seems like uh, there's a movie now coming out every year with zombies somehow, and, and it's 
quite popular, but not to diminish what Paul is saying here, but in a sense, he's saying that that's what we were. We were walking corpses, spiritually speaking. We didn't have a little bit of a light in us that just needed to be, you know, awakened or brought to bear or something or that we needed to be revived. No, we were fully dead and required a miracle of sovereign grace. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you were being dead. God made you alive together with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5. And this is all so that he would showcase, display, reveal the wonder of his mercy, which he extended to us, his love that he extended to us in Christ Jesus. When I was in New Jersey recently, we were driving around, Pastor Pinedo and I were driving around, and I couldn't help but to notice as we were driving beside the freeway this massive cemetery. It was actually distracting. It was so big, and I'm sorry, I can't remember what cemetery it was, but I, I just can't remember when I saw a cemetery this big. And it's kind of a breathtaking sight Because here you see death, all these bodies, helpless, incapable of doing anything but just lying in the ground. And there are countless bodies there. And if you were to stand over one of those graves, I can guarantee you, that your chances of reviving one body by commanding them to come forth, your chances are zero. There's only one who has that power and authority and dominion to stand before a body that is dead and declare, come forth. As Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, commanded Lazarus, Lazarus come forth. Lazarus had no choice but to come forth because of the power of God. Well, then this is why I suggest to people that they visit graves occasionally. You know, it's interesting, and I, I, I never want to sound like I'm morbid, trying to be morbid about this, but in the modern society, we don't understand death or experience it like past generations did. If someone died in your family you would have to deal with their body and you would likely have to bury the individual. You would have to then experience all the experiences of of handling death. Today in the modern world, someone passes away and we call the authorities and an ambulance takes them away and then they're taken to a mortuary and you may never see the body until there's makeup on the the face and, and it looks better than it really is. But mark this, the language that Paul is using here is language that would have been understood by their generation in a way that we don't. Death is real. It is solemn. And it is what we are spiritually apart from grace. When you visit cemeteries, you see that some have tombstones that are just sad, really. A lot of tombstones are just like a, a, a resume. 
descriptions of the the goodness of the individual, their merit and their accomplishments and so forth. There's not a body in any of those graves that is going to be resurrected on the final day because of their resume on their, on their tomb. The tombstones that are more encouraging are those that speak only of the hope of Christ in the risen Savior, because that's our only hope. And this is exactly what God is doing Whenever he saves a sinner, he is displaying and revealing the fact that he alone is our hope. Now we need to think about what has already been brought forth in the text of Ephesians 2. And that is the mystery of his sovereign love. Again, when you look at the relationship between Ephesians 1 and 2, he's already talked about the sovereign love of the Father in choosing us from before the foundation of the world. And then when we get to verse 4 of chapter 2, we're reminded of the fact that, that God who is rich in mercy, and then he says, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, again, repeating that idea of the death march, even when all that was going on, we were made alive together with Christ. And all of this has taken place, as he says in verse 7, our salvation in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But brethren, there's still a sense in which we have to say, how can this even be? Why would God save me? I mean, I understand the biblical answer, and the biblical answer is, is that God is doing it for his glory, but when we realize the fact that we deserved none of this, but instead deserve wrath, and you really start to think about that and contemplate that, you can't help but to wonder, how can it be? I'm thankful for Ed and Scott going through the, a number of hymns. I believe one of the hymns that you went through was How Sweet and Awful is the Place. Am I, is my memory failing me already? I think you covered that hymn. Awful or awesome. By the way, we've got to f- fix these words. Awe, fear, awful, fearful, awesome, fearful. How sweet and awesome is the place the hymn writer says, with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. That's Ephesians 2.7. What is God doing in saving and redeeming people? He's displaying this wonderful reality of the fact that he has poured out his mercy, grace, and love upon sinners and redeemed them. Then you come to the question in verse 2. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? How can this be? Then again, the question in verse 3, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Was the same love, verse 4, that spread the feast, that sweetly drew us in, 
else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. And then a cry for the world, for the loss of this world, comes forth in this hymn by Isaac Watts. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. That's our heart cry, is that God would extend his mercy and love to many and that they too would be able to sing of his redeeming grace. It is a great wonder that God's mercy and grace has been extended in this wonderful way. I already mentioned the song, the hymn by Samuel Crossman, My Song is Love Unknown. In verse 1, it says this, he says this, Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? What distinguished me for this sacrifice? The answer is nothing. It's a rhetorical question. We know the answer is nothing. It's not me. It's his mercy and love. And it's ultimately his glory. By the way, we see this expression of, we might call it incredulity, a sense of amazement, wonder that God would save any. We see this in the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Look with me in Acts chapter 26 as a first text. Paul gives his testimony before King Agrippa. And in verse 9, he says this, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. This is Saul before the Lord saved him. While thus engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul thought he was persecuting the church. The one he was really at enmity against was the king of the church. Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting me? They're my people. This is my church. What a remarkable thing it is that God would choose Saul to save him, redeem him, and use him for his glory. Brethren, this is what he does 
for every sinner who is redeemed by his grace. So the Apostle Paul then says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Then he says, even though... Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason, I found mercy in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate, demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And then in his joyful response of the work of God, he says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says to Timothy, you know what God is doing? He's demonstrating his patience. He's showcasing his patience, his mercy, his love. Brethren, every time we have the opportunity to speak to a lost soul, May we speak often and with urgency of the fact that God is doing that in and through us. We too are sinners. We too are lost without Christ. We too are condemned without Christ. Therefore, our boasting is not in us. It is in the one who redeemed us and who is demonstrating his mercy and love. John Newton, who formerly was a slave ship captain of many years, wholly relented of the wickedness of his life when he converted. The Lord's transformative work made him another fierce contender for the abolitionist cause. He wrote a book entitled Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade in 1788, in which he offered this sobering reflection. He said, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. And he said this, I was formerly one of his, Satan's, active undertempters, and had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all the human race with me. A common drunkard or profligate is a petty sinner to what I was. Brethren, when we sing the hymn, Amazing Grace, which says, How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This is exactly what Newton is talking about. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. This is what we all must talk about. We're all wretched people. And the only reason why we're different now is because of the mercy and the grace of God. On his deathbed, his singular confession was this, I am a great sinner, 
but Christ is a great Savior. Brethren, that's our confession. That's our confession to this lost and dying world. And we need to remember that God is using us, displaying his mercy, grace, and love to this world. Finally, consider with me for a moment the beauty of this sovereign love. I began with Phyllis Wheatley, and again, as I said, I don't usually go to poetry, but because of her gospel emphasis in her poems, I, I just find it striking that we have here, in the case of Phyllis Wheatley, an individual who endured a great deal in her life, and yet she did not showcase the bitterness that we see so often amongst the social justice advocates in the modern day. It seems as though we live in a society that we just have professional complainers. But a child of God sees grace and love and showcases the beauty of that grace and love. Thomas Clarkson, who was a strong abolitionist, used Wheatley's poetry as a rebuke against the pro-slavery advocates who argued that, the, that blacks were inferior In Clarkson's work, an essay on the slavery and commerce of the human species, particularly the African, he pummeled the pro-slavery position with decisive force when he said this, Such is the poetry of Wheatley, which I produce as a proof of my assertions. I shall therefore only beg leave to accompany my argument with this observation, that if the authoress was designed for slavery, as the argument must confess, the greater part of the inhabitants of Britain must lose their claim to freedom. Remarkably, many colonists here in the United States could not believe that an enslaved African could produce such amazing, such excellent poetry. And because of this, Wheatley had to defend the authenticity of her work in court in 1772 before an assembly of Boston luminaries, John Hancock, Thomas Hutchinson, Andrew Oliver, John Irving, and Tom, uh, Charles Chauncey, they concluded, rightly, that her writings were, in fact, authentic, that they were, in fact, hers. However, Thomas Jefferson weighed in on this question with this morose judgment. In a disturbing passage in which Jefferson revealed his views of blacks, by means of a bizarre show of sophistry, he asserted that they were, quote, in reason much inferior, as I think one could scarcely be found capable of tracing and comprehending the investigations of Euclid, and that in imagination they are dull, tasteless, and anomalous, end quote. Jefferson then aimed his vacuous musing against Wheatley, saying, quote, religion indeed has produced Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. The compositions published under her name are below the dignity of criticism. You know what's sad about Thomas Jefferson? I, we, we lionize him, but I think too much. We can be thankful for our founding fathers, but brethren, um, Thomas Jefferson did not know Christ. The Jefferson Bible is a redaction of the scriptures and most of the Bible is gone and he likens the portions that he omitted to a dunghill. 
What's remarkable is that Phyllis Wheatley, a slave, understood true riches far better than Thomas Jefferson. She understood that no matter what others said about her, she knew she was a child of the king and would someday claim the celestial crown of Christ and have, as she said in her poem, life without death and glory without end. That confession of hope, sadly, was not the confession of Thomas Jefferson. What Jefferson did not understand is that God was demonstrating the beauty of the surpassing riches of his grace in and through Wheatley. Brethren, this is one of the reasons why last Lord's Day and why this morning I began with a reminder of the fact, as John says in 1 John, humanity, however you divide it in its societal structures, its socioeconomic divisions, ethnicity or any other distinction, all of humanity is reduced to only two categories, the children of God and the children of the devil those who believe and those who do not. That's it. And that's all that matters. Because you therefore have those who are exhibiting and communicating and displaying the mercy and the grace of God as the disciples of Jesus Christ And those who are going to be used as a display of God's wrath, Romans 9, 17. When we come to the Lord's table, we have this reminder again, because you had 11 disciples, not 12, 11. And the son of perdition, who was called by name a disciple, was not a genuine disciple. He remained at enmity with Christ, and this is why Christ referred to him as the son of perdition. There are many things that we ought to contemplate when we come to the Lord's table. And one of them is that we have every reason to give thanks and glory to God because he mercifully is using us to display his mercy, his grace, and his love.